by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we think about it this morning, uh, may you speak to us. And as I share this time, Lord, we uh, give it into your hands, Lord. Again, you know what we need to hear, Father. You, need the, you know the exhortation we need to hear. You know the encouragement, the, uh, the word from you, Lord. Take this time and set it apart for your purposes. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Richard Wimbrand was the uh, founder of the ministry Voice of the Martyrs, you know, ministry to the persecuted church. Uh, he's the author of Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor who was, you know, shortly after the communist takeover in Romania, was uh, arrested and tortured in prison for, I think, some 15 years or so. Um, he writes about um, when the communists came to power and what sort of the relation between the church and the communist party. He wrote, uh, once the communists came to power, they skillfully used the means of seduction towards the church. Jesus has told us to discern between the language of seduction and the language of love, and to know the wolves clad in sheepskin from the real sheep. Unfortunately, when the communists came to power, thousands of priests, pastors, and ministers did not know how to discern between the two voices. The communists convened a congress of all Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were 4,000 ministers of all denominations. And these men of God chose Joseph Stalin as the honorary president of the Congress. One after another, one after another, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise towards communism and assured the new government of the loyalty of the church. An Orthodox bishop put the hammer and sickle on his robes. Some priests became officers of the secret police. A bishop of the Lutheran Church in Romania began to teach in the seminary that God gave three revelations, one through Moses, one through Jesus, and a third through Stalin. The president of the Baptist praised Stalin as a great teacher of the Bible and proclaimed Stalin did nothing but fulfill the commandments of God. It must be said that many Christians did not agree and were very faithful to Christ, suffering much. Fairly shocking, isn't it? But uh, not that unusual. You know, it was shortly before this time, the same thing happened in Germany with the church and Hitler, wasn't it? You know, he basically, you know, wanted the church then to become subject to him and to his power and to the authorities. And it divided the church in Germany as well between those who basically were allowed to function in Germany under him and those 
who had to go underneath and suffered great persecution. It's interesting in China even today, you know, the, the, the church which sort of obeys the, the state, which, by the way, doesn't preach about the return of Christ, which the, does, the Chinese government doesn't allow, uh, versus that which goes underground. And I think it shouldn't surprise us that oftentimes the state tries to grab the moral authority of the church. You know, today even, I mean, that's oftentimes a, a changing ideologi- ideology of our culture wants the church's approval of it, in a sense to baptize different ways of viewing the world. So what do we need to live in that kind of world? What enabled people like in Germany, like in Barth and Bonhoeffer and guys with the Barman Declaration to say, no, no, Jesus is Lord and we are not subject to Hitler or to the, you know, Christians like Richard Wombrand and others in Romania? or us today, you can tell it's not simply knowing the Bible, is it? You need to understand God, understand the Bible, and understand how then the times and how it applies into your world at that time. You need essentially to put on a lens which helps you to discern what is going on. Because it's amazing. He didn't say, I mean, there might be coercion, but a lot of this seemed like the people were just fooled. You know, they, they, they were seduced. How do we not have that happen? That's one of the things I want to talk about this morning. You know, how do we have that sort of a viewpoint? What we're doing in January as a church is we're going through our sort of, you know, what are we trying to become? You know, our, our mission statement being, it's not just a statement, but it's like, what do we want to be as a church? As we start this new January and this new year, we say, what do we want to become as a body? Because that's far more important than, you know, all the little numbers and all that kind of stuff. Is what do we want to be as God's people? And we, you know, wrote a, we've been doing a lot of leadership and other leaders coming together, and we wrote a new vision and mission statement. And remember, vision statement's about what, kind of what you want to be, and a mission statement's kind of what do you want to be doing. See, what do we want to be as a church? Well, we want to be a vibrant community, being changed by Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, boldly following God into the world. And what do we want to be doing? You know, we want to be actively engaged with God and his word, Foster a caring community of disciples of Jesus. Bring God's healing to our hurting world. Invite our neighbors to follow Jesus with us. And these are things we're going to be talking about over this month. What, is, uh, what does it mean? I mean, how do we actually do these things? And uh, so last week we began with this first statement, and began with the first half of it, actually, about actively engaging with God. And now we're going to talk a little bit more this week about actively engaging with his word. What does that mean? What does that look like? Now, we actually set up um, numbers of goals, you know, that say, how do we fulfill these things for each one of these statements? And, you know, we set up six goals, actually, as a church of things we want to, you know, what does this actually look like to actively engage with God and his word? And uh, last week, the first three are more related to actively engaging with God. And some of what we talked about last week, you know, that we want to be a place where everyone is actively seeking to grow deeper in their relationship with God. We want to prioritize a vibrant worship service where everyone can and is encouraged to engage with God in the scriptures. This is very key, because oftentimes you think coming to church is about community, in essence, right? Just kind of being together. No, corporate worship is a unique experience in the life of the church. As this people gather together, and there needs to be, we want a vibrancy to that, where we are all challenged together to engage with the living God and engage with his word. And we want to encourage a vibrant individual prayer and prayer in groups. You know, prayer in some ways is the central almost conviction of faith. You know, do you, do you believe there is a God who hears us? 
If you believe that, what do you do? You pray. You know, it's the most elemental uh, response. And we want to be a place that vibrantly takes God up on that offer. He says Jesus is an intercessor before the Father. We want to call out to him. Now, the second three are more about this actively engaging with God and his word, which we want to talk about this morning. First one of that is to build enthusiasm for and knowledge of God's word. And we'll talk also about cultivating the ability to think biblically about issues in the world, cultivate a biblical or Christian worldview, providing a discipleship pathway. So that first word, building enthusiasm for and knowledge of God's word. That's a lot we've been talking about today in this service. You know, we talked in the fall about this, you know, about being a people of the book. You know, you, you cannot, the Christian faith and the scriptures are hand in hand. You almost, you can't separate them. You want to follow Jesus, there's the Bible, and there really is no, it's, it, it's you know, one and one. You know, as it says, the scripture itself is God-breathed. This, again, we talked about this in the, in the fall, uh, that, that actually the scripture itself is connected to God in a just a remarkable way. It is his word. It is, it is an outbreath of him. And thus it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Why? So the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It equips you so you can walk in this world and carry out everything God has for you. That's what the scripture is. That's why we want to grow in our knowledge and enthusiasm for it. And it and the, but the Bible's not just an information manual. It actually claims in Hebrews... That is, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And the Word of God is his, you know, scalpel. Amazing, huh? I remember, you know, for 27 years of my life, I never read the Bible in my life ever that I can remember. You know, and I became a believer in Jesus, and I was just like, this book's unbelievable. And this, this passage in particular, I think I've told this story, but it was, it's always so poignant to me because I was just like, this thing is living and active. This book's alive. I was like, this thing's unbelievable. And I was convinced, actually, you know, we were at a hostel where travelers would come by, and you kind of, you know, share with the travelers about our faith and witness to them. And I, I, but I was so convinced that the Bible would just zap them the way it would zap me. So I'd be talking to them, and I'd just try to get it open. I'd say, just read this. You know, and I'd sit there, and I'd go, and I'd be watching them. You know, like, read, like, huh? Huh? You know? And, uh, and it, it didn't work that much. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, I was, was very enthusiastic and very expectant. There were times it did. There were times it did. But I have actually found that as people would be, you know, you, you could almost tell when the Spirit of God is kind of working in someone's life because the Bible takes on this life. And the person actually begins to be fed from it in a way they weren't. And I've actually seen that happen again and again. The eyes begin to open up. But not exactly as I'd hoped, you know. I couldn't use it as a weapon. Zap! You know, like that. But you, which would be awesome, wouldn't it? Just to, like, you know, flash it out. But the Bible, God gives it to us so that we can live and walk in this world. You know, it's a great, as Patrick read earlier, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. You know, in the midst of this 
dark world, and this is, you know, broken bodies as we walk like this, God's given us the word of God that we can actually walk in it. We can have the confidence to live here in a way that's pleasing to him. You know, and, we, and the cry of the psalmist, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. You know, we are, this is hard here. This is difficult. We're lost all the time. Why is life like this? You know, I mean, some people, some people seem to coast through life, but I'm, I'm convinced now that actually no one coasts, but we just appear to be coasting. Facebook's terrible, you know, because, you know, the inside of it, it's a struggle that life is. And God's given us the word, our companion, that we can live in this, in this world. He said, the word is a, a, a light, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, it, it lights it up so that we can walk and live here. And he wants us to engage with his word. I mean, look at the language there. And uh, it's too small on my computer. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we see, this is, see the first one? I seek you with all my heart. So this is requiring you to really seek to see what it says. I don't want to make it too large of font so you can read easily. You know, it's, we, we're such a, you know, we want an ice cream culture. Everything's simple. You know, we want to seek the Lord with all of our heart. Have hidden your word in my heart. I meditate on your precepts. I delight in your decrees. But you see the active kind of verbs there and the active words? Seeking, delighting, meditating on. Hiding God's word in our heart. There's a sense in which we come after his word to know it. I loved uh, Kate's picture. I mean, that's really what it's supposed to be. That there's just a part where it it's, it's permeates from us and comes from us. You know, that's, uh, when we talk about what we want to be as a church, we want to build enthusiasm for a knowledge of God's word. We want to be a people who are soaked in it, who seek after it. And again, for what purpose, right? Not just to have information. And I'll be really good at little, you know, we're not trying to, you know, do well on a Bible trivia quiz. We're trying to live in this world. And that's that second piece where it says, we want just not build enthusiasm of knowledge of God's word to cultivate the ability to think biblically about issues in the world. Cultivate a biblical Christian worldview. And it's this idea of a worldview, I mean, it's, it's a fancy term, but the idea that we, we see the, the world through lenses. And everyone does. Everyone has presuppositions about the nature of life and what's important and on what basis you make decisions and what you're seeking for. And that's the way you view the world. And we want people who view the world through that lens. Um, and, you know, I, and sometimes it's not even a, a simpler lens. Like, I, I was thinking a year ago, um, if you remember the, the shooting that happened in uh, Kentucky, you know, at a, little, at a little small town school where two of the kids, I think, were killed, and I think there were like 17 that were injured. And, um, and I, I never like to get political and stuff, but, um, you know, it's it just amazing to me that people have those things happen and everyone screams about gun control laws. And I'm always thinking wow, that's a very small way to think about the issue, isn't it? You know, a very small way to think about the tragedy. Whatever you believe about those laws, think I'm thinking much larger. I appreciate what the governor of Kentucky came out and said. Uh, and he's a you know, believer in Jesus. And he, and he actually took this wider view, because he's seeing the world and seeing this as part of a large thing in the world. He said, we can't celebrate death in video games, celebrate death in TV shows, celebrate death in movies, celebrate death in musical lyrics, and remove any sense of morality and sense of higher authority, and then expect that things like this are not going to happen. He was kind of viewing, here's what's happening in our culture. You know, it's a wider lens. 
it's so much larger than this. And he's looking out and seeing his culture, and how do I interact with that? And it's, in our, our biblical worldview, it just doesn't you know, make us you know, necessarily judge situations like this, but it's what actually motivates us to action. I mean, I go uh, weekly, I'm in, I go to, you guys know, it's a, you know there's a, a, we want to call it a program for people struggling with substance abuse. And I go there on a weekly basis and do a spirituality group there. Now, why do I do that? I'm driven by my biblical worldview. <laughs> you know, that's, what, that's why I'm there and sitting down with those folks. I mean, these folks, many of them have done really horrible things. And they are deeply broken and often difficult people. And many of them are forced to be there from the courts. And, but I view each one of them as being, you know, made in the image of God and thus of inestimable worth. You know, of a inc- value far more than they believe they have. Many of them believe they have no value. And I say, no, you, you, have, you can't even grasp how valuable and how loved you actually are. And that's why I'm here with you. And, and uh, it, it's... And, but on the same side, I actually believe they've actually done worse things than I think they're even willing to imagine. That they're actually worse than they think they are. And more loved. And it's not that I'm um, not horrified by many of the things they've done. I am. But I'm not surprised. You know, my worldview tells me that this world is desperately broken. And there are horrors all over the place. We are broken in our minds and bodies. We are broken in our environment. Many of these people have had the, these guys have had the worst upbringing. So many have been in such horrible things that have shaped their lives. And I believe that, you know, the, the kind of choices that have been made horrible choices. And they're just this product of all these things. So I'm not surprised when I see desperate brokenness and horror in the world. But I also believe, because of my worldview, that God is a redeemer. And he wants to restore that person back into the image that he was made to. And God can do it. And I can come into that room because of my worldview, and I can bring hope that is real, that I have. And I invite them to come walk in that hope. Because of how I view the world, that's what makes me do that. And, and, and it seems like when someone says something really cutting back, it's, it's my viewpoint which doesn't care. You know, it's not that I'm so strong that I'm not taking offense. It's what I expect. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I can look it's, a view, it's your biblical worldview which looks straight through them to this broken creature that can't help but say something like that. You know? Um... I remembered, uh, and how your viewpoint affects it, one of the guys there, I remember I was sharing out of Matthew 6, you know, talking about the uh, anxiety, you know, people's fear, uh, worry about the world. And, you know, Jesus said, you know, look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow or store in barns. But your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And one of the guys went, well, I, I don't believe I am more valuable than a bird. You know, I don't believe in God. I don't think, hey, that's that. Because that was his, that was his worldview. That he was just, you know, just any other, any other creature that happened to come up, not one of more value than another. And does it surprise that this guy was also at the same time saying, I don't know why I should live anymore. All things that are messed up, I don't have any reason to go up. I don't go out in the world. I, I live in fear all the time. So he's perpetually in fear, depression, and doesn't see any purpose to his life. That's related to how he views the world. 
I mean, think about the communist nation. Talking about, you know, Stalinist, right? Should it surprise us when you view the world from an atheistic standpoint that, you know, Stalinist purges, how many people in that, you know, 20 million people were killed? A generation of people wiped out. And every place communism has been, right? That has been the result. Right? You know, a Pol Pot with the Khmer Rouge. You know, six million people, they killed perhaps two million. You know, were killed in those purges. Cultural revolution in China. Nobody knows the numbers. You know, probably, well, more than the Stalinist ones. It's the logical outworking of the way they view the world. But it's, it's very personal, too, the, the way we view the world. It's going to impact everything we look at. You know, um, thinking about education, you know, some years ago, Nikki, uh, with one of her friends, actually began a school, right? It was a hybrid school between uh, private education and homeschooling. And as, for the first time, looking into philosophy of education, I hadn't really thought about that much. You realize... What do you view the purpose of your education? What are you trying to become? You know, what, what, are you, what are you trying to do with education? Are you just trying to fill them with knowledge? And it's amazing. I went through a lot of schools. They're more concerned with, you know, uh, safety of the child and passing tests. And, giving, and, and they're almost afraid to ask, what am I actually trying to do? And it became oftentimes what seemed like in a lot of, a lot of different schools, you know, accumulation of information. And I'm saying, no, our viewpoint is we're trying to help this person prepare to be a fully-orbed human, which involves some information and skills, but involves emotional, social, spiritual. You know, it's all together in the development of a child. But it's your viewpoint that impacts how you view that. You know, when you think about it, you want to have a business. Why do you do what you do? What are you seeking to accomplish? What makes it the ethical decisions you do? That's your worldview. What are you going to do with your money? Stewards, you know, all like, you know the, the possessions you have. How do you decide to spend and not spend? That's your worldview. How do you, your parenting. Marriage. Oh, my goodness. What do you believe marriage is? Will greatly impact whether that marriage survives. You know, whether you... Because every marriage, by the way, has problems. What makes you persevere through that? What sets your expectations? If I believe we're both broken people, you know, uh, forgiven by grace, and I, you know, I'm a vessel of grace, and boy, that changes by far how I'm going to view my spouse, and how I'm going to view our issues, and how I view my own failings in the midst of it. You know, I don't expect to be perfect. By the way, if any of you guys expect to be perfect spouses or expect your spouse to be perfect, don't get married. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Just saying. All right? Ain't going to happen. I don't know. Without grace, I don't know how you possibly survive a marriage. I don't. You know, that's your biblical worldview. You know, impacts that. Um, it shapes all the things that we do. Um, I love these verses here. Um, you know, Daniel 11, it's almost like, it talks to, you know, this prophetic image of the coming of the Antichrist. And it said he, you know, with flattery, he'll corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And so he's even going at the, in a sense, the church, if you want to call it, or going at the followers of God. And there's a people there who know what's going on and know how to resist it. Like when it says in First Chronicles, what a great line, from Issachar, men who understood their times and knew what Israel would do. Yeah, I think that's what we're called to be, right? People who understand our times, who, who firmly resist, who stand for him, who view our lives through the lens of God and the scriptures. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. Now, some people may think, wow, you may agree with me what I'm saying, but you're feeling a little intimidated. <laughs> you know? Just like, well, yeah, how do I 
how do I do this? How do I begin to do this? You know, you might be thinking, yeah, but man, when I read the Bible, I get confused and I'm kind of bored. You know, or, or maybe you know, sometimes this is kind of hard to read. You know, how am I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, I'd, it's a stupid picture. But, uh, you know, but I, you know, we could feel like that sometimes, and, you know, we could feel intimidated by it. And I would just say, you know, what, what thing did you learn to do that you didn't feel at first intimidated by? You know, many, many people here are great musicians here. What was the first time you looked at a sheet of music? understand anything that's going on there, and you're intimidated by it. What am I supposed to do, you know? But you study, and you learn, and bit by bit, there's times when you're bored, there's times when you're frustrated, there's times you don't get it. That's okay, you climb, and you go. Anyone, you know, mathematics, I mean, name your, name your skill that you have. Think about the journey of getting there. The times you didn't understand, the times you were bored with it, the times you were distracted by it, the times you were frustrated, the starts and stops of feeling like, I'm starting to get it, start to get it. No, I don't. Vroom, vroom, vroom. It's with everything. Scripture's the same way. You know, but again, we've talked about it begins with desire, being with wanting to do it. And it really, it, and it also, I want to say, the last goal we have is provide a discipleship pathway, is a key part, because you just, you know, we need help, you know, as a community. And something that's always kind of been done that's been lost somewhat in the, in the, in the Western church a bit is the idea of being discipled. I mean, it's a fancy word. Disciples, a, it's one of these Christianese words, you know, your word processing program will say spelled wrong. No, no, we use that word, you know. <laughs> um, you know, all these different, like, ways we've turned it into all kinds of things. But the idea that, um, you know, we become a disciple of Jesus to follow him, but there's... Most like when I became a believer in Jesus, you know, I, met, I began meeting with the elder of our church, you know, on a weekly basis to study, to talk through what was happening with me spiritually, helping me to learn the Scripture, learn what I believed, learning how to follow Him. I came back to the states and I met with a pastor, a pastor for probably a year, you know. Um, again, as I was you know doing you know, doing outreach and doing leading a small group, uh, and for many people that's that's kind of standard stuff. I remember the Russian church, you know, you come forward and confess your faith, they'd immediately hook you up with another member of the church, and you meet with them for six months as they help equip you and learn, you know, how do I begin to dive into the scripture, learn the disciplines, learn how to follow him. And, uh, you know, actually, good friends of ours, the church movement, the Antioch movement, right, there, they expect all their, you know, everyone who comes to their church to go through this year discipleship program where they meet for probably three hours a week and do a ton of homework and read books on the outside and come together. Uh, now, of course, they're all college students, so they have way more time. You know, we got a whole bunch of people who are, like, working, like, yeah, boy. Isn't it fun? Don't you, don't you laugh? I'm sorry, there's some college students here, and we always, I, I laugh when they say they're busy. I'm like, I was never busy, never busy till I had kids. You know, I guess, until you have kids, you don't know what busy is. It's just, it's not. You're not busy, all right? You're not, Okay. You are not. Um, <clears throat> all right, that is not what I'm talking about today, but just saying, all right? You know, it's like, <laughs> But it, I still want to challenge us. To, you know, sometimes you can, the, the kind of progress you can make in your faith, and I think everybody should have a time of, you know, like a six-month or year intensive kind of time when you're really diving into it to learn to be discipled. 
And there's a lot of ways to do it. It could be like a mentoring kind of thing, like meeting with a pastor. Or I, I met with a number of people from here, you know, over seasons. I, th- I found like six months, nine months is really amazing what you can accomplish. And, but even some people believe in triads, like John Ogden, discipleship thing being, it's not like one person's a teacher and the other one's the kind of mentor, that three people come together. And it's better than two and would meet, you know, weekly or bi-weekly, going through some, you know, different work and doing work on their own and coming together. But having an intensive season like that to grow in your faith, I mean, ongoing in your life, you're always growing. So I want, and we want to have that as a church. We want everybody to have been able to go through something. You know, that's doable. That's in our busy lives, be able to do it. But just for all of us to be equipped to better be able to put on that lens to see our world, to be able to stand, to understand our times, to be able to engage with God and to follow him. Um, you know, that will be people who, you know, open my eyes, O oh Lord, that I may see wonderful things in your law. Because it takes some training up to be able to do that and to see how wonderful and beautiful and helpful and strengthening the word of God is. It doesn't happen naturally like that. So I was, um, as I was doing research this week, um, not for the sermon, but uh, for the big game, the Patriots game. <laughs> so I was uh, researching all I could on ESPN about the game. I was surprised when I saw an interview with Brian Flores, who is the Flores, the, uh, he's in charge of the defense. And they asked him the question on ESPN, um, is there a leadership book that you've read lately or one that is particularly meaningful to you? By the way, I read this this week, which is totally cool. He said, well, the Bible. He said, there's plenty there as far as how to lead, how to forgive, and how to love. I think that's all the qualities of a great leader. Yeah, no, no, yeah, good answer, huh? This is on ESPN, which is good when I'm studying to do this sermon. Thank you, Brian. And now Miami Dolphins want him as the head coach, which is really a pain, you know. But it's amazing that I think as we follow and look through the biblical grid, you know, the Miami Dolphins see a great leader of men. You know, but there's going to be times when we're in step with culture and times we're out of step with culture. And let me just close with one last quote, which was also from Tortured for Christ, from Richard Wombrandt's experience in the Romanian prison. He actually was there with a person who was the former prime minister of Romania, who was a Christian, who was arrested and actually died in prison, in communism. And he said, um, these are the last words of something I can't pronounce. Iliu Manu, a Christian and the former prime minister of Romania, who died in prison. He said, if the communists are overthrown in our country... It will be the most holy duty of every Christian to go into the streets and at the risk of their own life defend the communists from the righteous fury of the multitudes whom they have tyrannized. Is that not a different way to view the world? See, the very people who threw me in prison, who are actually responsible, you know, going to kill me, goes, when it happens, when they get turned over and the righteous fury of the nation is upon these people, our duty will now then be to stand in front of them at the risk of our own lives. You know, to walk as a follower of Jesus is an unusual calling in this world. We don't act the way the world does. We see these things not as the world does. But that's the call of God on our lives, to be his unusual people in the midst of this world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we... Praise you and thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. And we do want to see wonderful things in your law. We want to believe that you can keep us pure when we live according to your word. 
Lord, we long that we would hide your word in our hearts. That when we look out upon our, our spouses, our, our workmates, our world, that we'd see it through your lenses. Understand the world as you do. Lord, we want to be your people. Live faithfully and wisely. Be people of understanding and wisdom. And people with a, a heart that's pliable. That you might speak to us, mold us, and change us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.